1: folks, how are you doing out there? Hope you're doing good. Uh, I'm doing great. Me and the guys, we're busy as uh, mother truckers getting ready for this West Coast tour. Tickets are on sale now. You can uh, find tickets in the show notes of this episode and episodes previous or over on our Instagram. Uh, we can't wait to see you Vancouver and Edmonton and uh, it's going to be a really fun time. But because we are just working our little buns off for this tour, uh, this week for our routine checkup, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to give you a throwback episode, an episode from all the way back in July of 2020 when the you know the metaphorical shit started hitting the, the, the literal fan. Um, and uh, this is a conversation that we had with Dr. Graham Dallaire. He is a professor of pathology at Dalhousie University here in Halifax. And we talk all about gene therapy and CRISPR. Um, I remember this being an incredibly fascinating conversation. We, we totally fell in love with the topic when we started talking about it. And, um, and yeah, I feel like you would, uh, if you haven't heard it, you'll enjoy the shit out of it. And if you haven't heard it in a while, it's a nice little reminder. All right. Well, I hope you're doing well out there. Stay safe, uh, wear masks when you need it, wash your hands, be nice to your neighbor and buy tickets to our show or else. Um, or else, God will smite you. Uh, okay, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Graham Delair. We will see you all on the other side. All right, uh, let's uh, let's rock and roll here. Rock, uh, doctor, doctor Graham Dallaire, Um What kind of doctor? What, what are we are we talking like medical doctor or like Sorry. one of those doctors that? Like the doctor, like I'm a smart guy, so they call me a doctor. <laughs> a smart so I have a guy. degree in
2: experimental medicine. So I have a PhD in experimental medicine from McGill. And uh, that confuses people because it's got medicine in the name. But mm. uh, I was supposed to do an MD, PhD, it's an MD, PhD program. And I never mm. got around to writing the MCAT. So uh, the rest is history. Okay.
3: okay. All right. Sweet. So you're you're a smart you're a smart guy. Smart guy.
1: Smart, yeah, smart guy. A smart yeah, guy. I, used to think I was uh, adopted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are a professor of pathology at Dalhousie University here in Halifax. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Pathology is the is the study of of like diagnosing. You're reading the Wikipedia page and right, right now. mechanism
2: of disease. So they, they often right, call okay. it the, the trunk of the tree of medicine. So literally everything goes right. through pathology. So we touch on every aspect of medicine, and so it, it works well for me because I'm kind of uh, you know a jack of all trades. Even in my own research, I I work on whatever interests me, and um, mm. so I probably landed where I was supposed to land. Uh, you know, cool, right in the middle of things. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the, so the reason that this this uh, this conversation was set up was because recently on an episode we were talking about. Well, we were were, the 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 topic of CRISPR came up, and uh, Taylor was like was like really uh, aching to talk to someone who knows a little bit about CRISPR. And uh, I believe it was the episode where we were talking about Tommy Douglas and his love of eugenics, and then somehow that landed us in the in the the realm of CRISPR. And now we're and now we find ourselves here. Um, and if we I, do
3: one more episode where we talk about eugenics and CRISPR <laughs> in the same episode, people are going to start thinking that they're the
1: same thing, yeah. and it's going to yeah, be yeah, bad, yeah. Bad, bad, bad. Also, tearing down <laughs> any
2: uh, sculptures or defacing paintings of Tommy that, Douglas. That, that's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right.
1: Yeah. Um. Uh. So I. I guess CRISPR is 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 something that the first time I ever heard the word CRISPR I believe was in 2015, and it was it was a Radiolab episode that Mm. that I feel like was a pretty popular episode for even for their standards. Um. I'm sure there's people listening right now in our audience who aren't familiar with what CRISPR is or what that even means. Sure. So, Graham, why don't you give us a little rundown on like what what the fuck is CRISPR? Yeah. So, CRISPR
2: is an acronym, first of all, just because nobody wanted to say the full name, which is clustered regularly, interspace, palindromic repeat. So, I mean, I trip on that too. And it, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to say didn't, It didn't sound it's, like right? you
0: tripped on it at all. Day. No, I got, I got
2: notes up. So, you know, I'd look professional. Uh, we do, do some media training at Dow, So, you know.
3: That's good. <laughs> can write off anything I do, good or
2: bad, on that.
3: You sound like you got an A in that class. Yeah. Awesome, right? yeah.
2: Well, I thought about podcasting myself, right, as a as an alternative plan um, to you know the failing research enterprise in Canada, because it, we, we've had a lot of problems. Maybe that could be a separate podcast with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. But um, there's been a yeah, huge, totally. uh, you know, moral quandary happening uh, within the community, and then you know almost complete destruction. Uh, in 2016 of of our major funding agency, which led to the okay. firing of the head of the agency, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So oh, if no, you no. ever want to dig into that, then we can, we can come back and, and do that. So anyway, uh, mm-hmm. the thing about CRISPR, it's an acronym. It's a way of basically cutting DNA. And why that's important is that's a way of triggering the body's own uh, system for repairing DNA, so DNA repair. And, and that's something that I'm an expert on, I've been trained in, and in fact, my PhD was on gene targeting. So how do you target a gene for some kind of gene therapy? <clears throat> and I started in research with a conversation with someone, I took a lot of martial arts as a kid, and I was talking with uh, a guy who was doing a master's degree in virology. And he's like, what are you doing this summer? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know <clears throat> I'll go back to my hometown and mow lawns or whatever. And he said, we should check out the lab. And right at that point, I kind of got interested in gene therapy and what was going on. And that that kind of casual interaction got me into into research and thinking about it. And I was wow. focused heavily on like gene therapy. This is the next thing. It was It was, Mm. you know, the cover of Time Magazine in in the late 80s Mm -hmm. and early 90s. And so to trigger any kind of gene therapy, you have to make a break in DNA, typically. And all this is is a new method of making a break in DNA. So we can go into the history of all the other systems, including, uh, you know, companies that have been making enzymes that break DNA. But this was a a curveball for everyone because it was an ancient bacterial immune system. So people at DuPont who own a lot of patents on strains of bacteria they use for yogurt, were trying to figure out why all the all their yogurt bacteria would die. So an entire plant would shut down and economically that was bad. And DuPont's on the hook because they're making the strains for this yogurt. So they, they were doing experiments to figure out how do you have immunity to these strains of yogurt dying. And they were dying because they'd be infected by what are called bacteriophage. And so when a bacteriophage infects a bacterium, the bacterium have evolved a system where they take a little bit of the genome of the virus and put it in their own genome. And that goes into this locus, the CRISPR locus. And they noticed that bacterial strains that would be exposed to multiple phage, multiple viruses, this locus would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that triggered then this research of figuring out what this, these repeats were. And um, there's a Canadian connection in there in that someone named Sylvain Moineau at the University of Laval figured out that one of the genes within that growing cluster was actually an enzyme, and an enzyme that would eventually be shown um, by uh, Jennifer Doudna and um, Emmanuel Carpentier to cut DNA. And that was in 2012, and that kicked off everything. And at the same time, even though they conjectured this could be used for gene therapy, it was actually used for gene editing by two other researchers, um, Fang Zhang at MIT and Harvard and George Church. And if you know anything about George Church, uh, he's a complete scientific iconoclast. Uh, he he goes, I mean, his lab is basically where science fiction writers probably get most of their ideas. Uh, he's really wow. at the fringe wow. and at the edge. And if you don't follow this guy or, you know, check out his career, I really suggest you do because he's a fascinating person. Um, and uh, so those are kind of the four main members. But the researcher at du- DuPont um, was actually a guy named... Uh, philip horvath and so uh you know when people say who invented CRISPR, it's actually a group of people and an international community that were working on this interesting problem of why these these yogurt bacteria would suddenly die and, and how they develop resistance to phage infection so right. gene editing and yogurt that's your take-home message yeah there yeah you go. interesting
1: so, what so what like what would be a use for gene editing like how, how would how how could we What's, like, what's one example of something we could do with gene editing that would make like a, a, a massive difference in, in the population? Or well, well, how about something personally? just you
2: know, pedestrian but still impactful? So, so one mm. thing you use with gene editing, the, the biggest impact to this technology is probably going to be in pest control and in agriculture. Part of it is the regulations are going to be easier to, to move forward with these technologies because you're not directly affecting human health. Uh, or or heredity, and we can get into that a little bit later. That's where the ethics get a little squirrely. Uh, mm, yeah, so yeah. so really the big impact is going to be on synthetic biology, so engineering microorganisms to like break down plastics, right? That's a huge Whoa, thing. Really? So wow, that's yeah. totally possible. We have colleagues at Dalhousie who have been working <laughs> uh, on <laughs> cloning genes and figuring out the genes in porcupine uh, poop basically, uh, that there are bacterial colonies that live in, in uh porcupine gut that can break down uh, byproducts that you would see in pulp and paper. And so, you wow. know, you can, you can engineer these things into uh, a controllable organism and then spray them on, uh, you know, the effluent from pulp and paper and break down those resins. So, so uh, oh, that's a wow. colleague, John Robey at, <coughs> at Dalhousie.
0: Um, so, so they're they're basically like creating a new organism,
2: yeah, or even even creating an organism from scratch. I mean, these are these are things that George Church and and some other people have been doing, or uh, de-extincting organisms like the woolly mammoth. <laughs> you know where
0: wow. you know where my mind jumps here right away? Dra- Prometheus? Alien? Uh, no, no, no <laughs> back Jurassic Park.
1: <laughs>
2: oh yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, Jurassic Park was was you know, prescient in some ways, especially this idea of de extinction. Right. Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh and um the there the other thing that I was gonna mention that I think you're gonna see it being used for and, and that I like because I'm from the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. So oh, you wow. know, I grew up picking apples and, and picking fruit. And you know, one of the things you see in the grocery store that was really a big hit for Canadian fruit being shipped internationally, is it would get bruised and rust, right? You cut open an apple and it turns brown. And, you know, who eats apples? It's predominantly kids. And the easiest way to give an apple to a kid is sliced or peeled. And guess what? I mean, my own kids, you, you cut an apple open and 10 minutes later, it's brown and they don't want to eat it. Uh, so there's a company in, in British Columbia that actually developed an apple, the Arctic apple, that would wouldn't turn brown. And um, that's a type of gene editing, but they did it on the rootstock of the tree. I mean, it's a brilliant technique because all the people worried about GM fruit. When you go Mm. and graft your favorite variety of apple, uh, you know, like a Honeycrisp, it now becomes an Arctic Honeycrisp, and that apple will not turn brown. It won't rot. So wait, but it's so not genetically not modified. Right. The apple itself yeah. isn't. Neither right. is the wow. pollen. You don't have to worry about the bees, nothing. It's the roots. But there's stuff. no
0: there's no like <clears throat> negative side effects of that because it just seems so like it seems so Manufactured that well, like well would, one at one out
1: of ten he didn't say but I uh, I just brought it up but one out of ten people who eat eat an Arctic apple die but that's like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like one out no, of I ten, mean you know, so like this
2: this was such a big change uh to agriculture that the U.S. was going to ban it until an American company bought um uh, Okanagan Specialty Fruits, which developed it, and now you can buy Arctic apples in the United States. They're still not sold in Canada you could buy them in the U S or they bought into it fully Whoa. because they knew we, that Whoa. if we control the Arctic stock, so the root stock, we would wipe out all the Apple industry in Washington like that because nobody would buy an Apple Whoa. anymore. That, that doesn't right. turn brown.
3: Right. Is, is there, there um, holy
2: is is it, so, so a, Holy shit. That's crazy. Just, just so on, big on that business, note, like, right? this yeah, so is, yeah, so the agricultural yeah, no use of CRISPR is going to be trillions of well,
0: dollars. Well, well I'm also wow. thinking about, um, they're talking about how you can, uh, the idea of like manufacturing meat like building like <laughs> like, like creating like s- steak or like chicken <laughs> in a petri dish so it 's like it is actually um uh at a cellular level it 's meat but it's it 's not doesn 't come from like an actual yeah. animal i guess is that is that in the, so in the That's same not that 's more thing? like you, if
2: you want to get into um stem cells um that that 's kind of more to, to get the muscle cells to grow, they have to be in a stem cell like state. So a lot of the stem cell technology could end up being used to make artificial meat and, mm. and yeah. tissue engineering, which again, Dalhousie okay. have colleagues that work on tissue engineering, but you know, not for burgers, but for like lung transplant or kidneys and right. things like that. <laughs> yeah. Lung, yeah.
3: The burgers, the burgers will be the more consumer oriented one. Down the, the volume line.
2: will be higher. <laughs> um, yeah.
3: Um, I, uh, I, just to get a like kind of an understanding of of the impact of the discovery by the scientific community of something like CRISPR is, and I'm and I'm thinking along these lines. And let me know if this is if this is a like an accurate comparison to make um, in terms of in terms of uh, mapping the human genome, which came along in which happened in the early two thousands two thousand two or
2: three. Yeah. I actually went to the okay. meeting in Scotland where they unveiled it. And I can right. say that, that there and wasn't that was a dry like massive, eye right in the entire place. Yeah. Uh, everybody was felt like this was a big moment and you know, you had ninety-year-old profs with tears streaming down their face. It was a big deal.
3: Now is that is that would that be similar to the comparison I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make here is something like creating telephone lines and all of a sudden there's this crazy form of communication where you can communicate with people over long distances and and it's revolutionary and we think that that's like or maybe that's the pinnacle and then and then all of a sudden like the internet comes along and opens up this like crazy bandwidth of opportunities for communication in all these different ways that we never even really thought were possible would it be would it be accurate to say that that would be akin to going from the like mapping the genome to finding something like crispr which all the, which unlocks all of this crazy potential that maybe we didn't even know prior to that was possible. Like are those the two big events or was there anything, was there anything monumental in between mapping the genome and discovering CRISPR that happened? That was well, that kind of linked So the I'd two say together? the big,
2: the big change, the big change uh, that happened was the sequencing technology that, that was required to, to sequence the human, human genome. And one of the people who was involved in accelerating that was someone named Craig Venter. And in fact, the majority of the genome that you can access is actually Craig Venter's DNA, ostensibly. Uh, so and you,
3: you mentioned kind of there just before we got cut off that there was some ethical. What was the that there were some ethical implications well, there?
2: I mean, what they had to do in the end. So so when you're going, you're in some ways it's it's hubris because it's like this is the ideal genome, but it's like literally right. one you know, person's genome. And then, uh, you know, eventually you, you got other DNA in there and there was something called the thousand genome project. And so they kind of papered over that initial whoopsie um, because generally <laughs> you're not supposed to use your own bodily fluids or material for research. Right. We don't ask students. Oh, right. or It's an ethical problem for you to donate blood for your own experiment. Right. Um, Why is that? <clears throat> the, like, well, the, partly is the... if you're working with pathogens and they infect your own blood, that could be an issue. The other, another right. one that happens when you have, Trainees is they could determine, for example, that they're male but they have a two Xs, mm-hmm. or they're female um, but are you know carrying some kind of anomaly. Or that they're not related to their biological parents. I mean, all these things can right. come out when uh, you start sampling your own. I feel like wow.
0: that's like the, a great impetus for like a a, a superhero story, though, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well,
3: yeah, they Lord, were just Lord. talking. I was listening to an episode of uh, of Joe Rogan yesterday on a road trip, and they were referencing. They were talking about athletics and stuff, and and they they mentioned a an athlete. I can't remember, maybe from the '80s or '90s, and um uh like female sex athlete. Uh, and then uh, competed as a female her entire life, and then and then there was like some for some reason she had some genetic testing done um, at the at at the Olympics, can't remember which Olympics, and they realized that she was an XY chromosome, but female female uh, like like biologically female, and anyway it was it was a pretty wild uh, and then and so then there was like all these implications around like competition and.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, I yeah, that, gender that, identity.
3: yeah that you brought oh, up there yeah. about that yeah. um, so these so, are the
2: things you don't want to happen accidentally uh with your students as you're training them so because you used to do simple things like test your own blood group and and every once in a while <coughs> if you knew a little bit of genetics you'd be like uh ah, yeah my dad's not my dad right just from your blood group um so so they kind of stopped that in the 80s when i was just coming through as an undergrad at university of British Columbia.
3: So something that something that we were talking about a lot last week um, uh, that brought this up. Well, we were talking like we mentioned at the top of the episode. We had a conversation um, with uh, with another uh, with another Halifax based podcast, um, and then that sort of led led us into talking about CRISPR and some some different um, aspects of uh, gene editing. And at the same time, I just happened to start watching uh, a, a series on Netflix, Netflix called "Unnatural Selection." Right and and all of the things that they were talking about and um which which has been really fascinating, all the stuff that um uh what's his name? The uh I have him here, uh Kevin Esfeld, I believe he's out of MIT doing Yeah,
2: um, I'm glad you mentioned him. Yeah, he's one of the guys who's kind of getting the ethics right.
3: Yeah, he seems he seem and he seems to be very, very 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 concerned with um very, very concerned with the ethics of it, and not just following the not just following what he believes is like the scientific fact, but he 's also talking to communities and getting sentiment and allowing that to play into how these things might get introduced into um, you know he was talking about it in sort of um, there was a project he was working on in New Zealand where they're, they they wanted to use uh, gene driving to eradicate the rat yeah. <laughs> uh, issue that they have in New Zealand um, there was also a tick. Uh, a, a, a lime, a lime thing that they were yeah, working on, on with uh, on Nantucket, yeah, and Martha's yeah. Vineyard, which was really fascinating, and how gene drive and gene drive was something that they really glossed over in sure. in the show. They made it seem really, really simple, but I'm sure it's uh, quite a bit more complicated. Uh, so than I can they... go
2: into that a little bit. So, so you know, this is again along this idea of synthetic biology and modifying um, organisms in our environment. So there are there are valid reasons uh, for sometimes using this technology, right? It's another tool in the toolbox, but the implications for conservation are sometimes a little scary. So uh, one of the things you always forget about is that if you can eradicate a pest from an environment, so in New Zealand, they want to get rid of all the rats or, or drastically reduce the population. The reason for that is that the rats are eating the eggs of these, of these land-bound species of birds that only exist in New Zealand and their eggs are being eaten by the rats now how do rats get to new zealand they got there on ships right so imagine you know new zealand decides as, as a society we've had it with the rats we're going to try this let's try a gene drive that's going to drive that species of rat to extinction so it's going to be the selfish gene that's going to transfer at a rate within the population that is unexpected for normal genetics so it's not normal what they call mendelian genetics so if it was a re- recessive trait that's going to kill the animal You'd have to, you know, be only 25% of the progeny would have this every generation. But with the gene drive, it's literally 100% of every generation carry the suicide gene or the gene that's going to make them sterile, for example. Now imagine the same rat gets on any boat. Now that's on yeah, the mainland. Right. That's going to happen. There's almost no way to stop a rat from getting on a boat. I mean, that's what they do. That's how they, they move all over the planet. So New Zealand starts that. There's no way that they can maintain it in New Zealand. And the same would probably happen with uh, the white-footed mice in Nantucket. Now, the white-footed mice, the, the, first of all, it's a little bit different in that there's, there's, um, it's not killing the animal. It's selecting for genes that are thought. So I don't think they have it completely worked out, but there are certainly uh, within the population of mice, mice that, that are resistant to infection with the Lyme disease bacterium. Now, one of the issues is Lyme disease is not just one bacterium it's a it's a, a bunch of organisms including viruses so uh, that are all carried by the tick so that's only one aspect right so you have to weigh that risk uh that that you're altering this animal it's released in the environment and it's going to pass those genes on even to mainland mice that's going to happen but but you know first thing is consultation locally like is everyone on board with this do we have reasonable risk of this um, being contained on the island and can we monitor it and if all those things are checked then I think it's reasonable to go ahead with it in in the Nantucket situation. Um, Whereas with the rat situation, if it's one of those things where they're all being kind of sterile, you you have to wonder what is going to fill that niche in the environment once you remove an organism Mm. that's massively dominated it. So you can't predict what the new species coming in is, and it could be worse. In, in, uh, and, and and these animals eat insects as well, right? So are right. you know, going to have this massive increase of of insect population that that you didn't intend? And if you think that's a fallacy, just think of what happened in China, uh, in the Forbidden City, where they killed all the birds because they were tired of the birds crapping on all the statues.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So they, they netted it and killed as many birds as they could. And then they have massive insect infestation. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's these massive, there's these massive implications when you start, when you start thinking about how these things are going to get introduced into, into the, the, the ecosystem. um, Yeah. In, in, I mean, in thinking about it in one ecosystem Uh, In a in a in an isolated part of the world, but how that can then jump to another part of the world. And then all of a sudden with unintended, I mean, you know, very, you know, eerily similar to what's going on in the world right now with. But there
2: are more benign uses of synthetic biology and gene editing technology. So, for example, um, producing rice that that make vitamin A, Mm -hmm. the so-called golden Mm. rice, right, that Mm. that's going to prevent hundreds and thousands of children in Southeast Asia from going blind. Um, Wow that's a reasonable use of, I mean, there's so many good stories about, like I'm a fan of gene editing. I just think that you mm. have to inform people of the risks. You have Mm. to mitigate the risks as much as you can. You have to have consensus in your population and, and things like modifying other organisms. I guess I'm a little more open to that when it comes to modifying humans. uh, If you've read any of the materials that I've produced uh, with my colleagues, um, Dr. Francoise (laughs) Bayless and Landon Getz, uh, and Natalie Kohler, uh, we're kind of deeply against uh, germline gene editing. And mm-hmm. um, for, Which for, because, for people
3: who don't understand, know what germline is. Sure.
2: So so that's a, a good question because there's some legal ramifications and some other technologies that have happened. So when you talk about germline uh, or heritable genetic changes, those are changes to the nuclear DNA in an egg or sperm or early embryo that can result in transmission of those changes to future generations. Now where it gets gray is that you also have mitochondrial DNA that you get from your mom. So 98, 99% of that DNA is coming from your mother. And that's also heritable. So that's a form of germline Mm -hmm. transmission of genetic changes. And so then that gets interesting because the United Kingdom is already allowed what's called three parent babies. And what happens there is they have a woman with uh, mitochondrial disease and she's going to transmit that to every child she has because that, that's the mitochondria in her egg. And so they take the Whoa. nucleus from her egg, put it into a donor female's egg where the mitochondria are healthy and then fertilize it with the father's sperm. So it's three parents. Whoa. Now in the United Kingdom, that's allowed under their law. And since 2015, when they allowed it, there have been 14 applications successful for applying this technique. Now, the first three-parent baby born was actually done uh, in the United, well, in Mexico. So, so it was initiated in the United States where it's illegal to, to implant that baby, to implant that embryo. Hmm. But it was implanted in Mexico and taken to term. And what I want to get into that is this is this idea of ethics dumping. So in your own society or your own country, you can have something that's illegal, but you can take yourself right to the line, scientifically, experimentally, and then hop on a jet and go somewhere else where ethically and legally it's allowed. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can have three parent babies in Ukraine and Greece, the United Kingdom, Mexico. United Kingdom would be tougher because you'd still have to go through all the regulatory rules. Right. But in places like the Ukraine, Greece, uh, Mexico, South America, some South uh, Asian countries, um, you can go ahead and have a three parent baby.
1: Now is is the reason it's illegal in, in a lot of other places, like for example, the U S, um, is, is the reasoning behind that because there's like a, a potential slippery slope that if we allow this, then it could trickle into allowing other types of gene editing in humans that just like, like, like where do you draw the line kind of thing? So
2: in the United States, um, they've they've been kind of against manipulating embryos in general since the mm. Reagan era. Mm. And and Canada actually had a leg up in the scientific world for for many years on stem cells because, uh, and working on embryos because we didn't have those uh, restrictions. And so you know, a lot of it was private research or privately funded research. So you couldn't have federal money to do research on embryos. Mm. So that kind of held that back. And there's still that legislative burden that'll happen when someone tries to do a new technique so in 2015 I think it was there there was an amendment um by a member from Alabama I tried to look this up because it's kind of convoluted but but under the the red the the restrictions in the United States a three-parent baby is technically possible and would be allowed but there's this amendment that's happened and it has to be renewed every year and that's preventing three-parent babies from being born. In Canada, we have this Assisted Human Reproduction Act that um, prohibits all manipulation of embryos and then implanting them.
1: So, mm. so you
2: you and and in general, I think internationally, you can normally take a a human embryo up to fourteen days and then destroy it, but you can't you can't implant that and there's mm. also you know a whole egg economy about getting the eggs in the first place right to eat human embryos yeah. which which often is under horrible circumstances um there's a you know a case in korea uh you know where the lab technician was basically uh blackmailed with threat of losing their job if they didn't donate eggs mm-hmm. um well, you know so so there are yeah. the <laughs> So that that's another reason not to yeah. be into experimenting on human embryos but you know there are there are catastrophic mitochondrial diseases and and I I'm I'm kind of open to three parent baby from the point of view of like you, you know this, this is these can be catastrophic diseases and and that can be it's a relatively simple manipulation with the IVF technology it's not that outlandish there's lots of examples of healthy children being born. But mm-hmm. on a legal precedent, it then opens up germline. So if, right. if, if right. the laws around it don't distinguish between mitochondrial genome and nuclear genome, we've opened the door now for, uh, you know, contesting and striking down a law like the Assisted Human Reproduction Act and saying, you know, now we're going to do human germline gene editing.
3: And, and that's where Canada, you get into, like, really go. Yes, yeah, or go ahead. I was just going to say
2: in Canada. So there, there's a bit of a split between um, scientists and researchers uh, in certain parts of the country where the IVF industry was quite powerful. So one of them is Quebec, where you used to have a lot of funding funneled through uh, from IVF, um, because at one point, the the government sponsored IVF treatments for for Quebec citizens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's this hangover of a generation of researchers and scientists who were part of that system, and they're heavy, heavy pushing three-parent babies. And, and me being a little bit cynical is like, well, they're trying to wiggle in to do three-parent, which I'm not against. But, but without really good language in how that's legislated, mm-hmm. you now open the door for yeah, uh, what comes germline right. gene right. editing. Right. And, and this is big business, okay? Right. So, so once we it's start before, editing children just... for money and then not worrying about the country going in ethics dumping. And so, mm-hmm. so, you know, they always say follow the money. If you want to follow the money about what's pushing human germline gene editing it's the IVF industry 100% they are the of... ones that directly benefit from from legalization of uh, human germline yeah. oh, okay in, right. in terms
0: of Ooh. in terms of uh, gene editing in because i'm just trying to like understand this from a from a uh, like more practical standpoint i guess uh, does gene editing in human beings have to happen uh in with an embryo or can no it absolutely after... not.
2: I'm so glad you raised that. Okay, I'm no, so curious absolutely. about so, how this is. So, so, so can you so can you make whole me career,
0: taller? my whole make... career
2: <laughs> is predicated on on the technology to be able to edit genes in a in a consenting adult who says, I have a muscular disease or I Ooh. have a hemopoietic like a blood disease, like uh, you know, thalassemia or hemophilia or sickle cell and I'd like to be cured, please. We absolutely have the technology now for that, and it's ethical to do that for these populations as long as you have equal access to the technology. So, you you know, you don't want to have the technology available and then so expensive the Mm. majority of people afflicted can't even afford it. And right now we're in that transition period where there are these non-germline, non-heritable gene editing techniques. So this is called somatic gene editing, where you can edit a gene help a person but they literally can't afford it and so the, the the people who are often afflicted are not going to be born as the children of millionaires or billionaires right mm-hmm. and this was the
3: example in a natural <laughs> selection well there was there was a few examples that when and one such was um uh, uh a a young man with uh spinal muscular atrophy yeah. who was, you know, but the treatment for the, 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 billion the, the dollars genetic treatment was like yeah. 800 grand or something every year. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of trouble accessing it. And then, uh, you know, I won't spoil the, the story for you. For those of you who want to watch the series, it's really interesting, but, uh, that was like one such example where it's not a millionaire not somebody who has access to all this money and their insurance doesn't, or, or wasn't going to cover yeah, it. They're all that fighting stuff. to get the treatment. Right. right so yeah. We, and that we, really we, brings us to like the, 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 The genesis of why we wanted to have this conversation was because we were talking about, I mean, Jeremy, so Jeremy lives with cystic fibrosis and, and, um, and we were having a a pretty lengthy conversation also about, um, about children born with Down syndrome and, and how, um, and how something like CRISPR, how something like CRISPR could now or in the future um, be of benefit to someone like Jeremy living with CF does the potential benefit go into, does that fall into the category of somatic or does it fall into the category of germline? So
2: there, there are two ways to think about this. One one is if we had widespread genetic testing for CF, in, mm. and they did this in Edinburgh, Scotland, where uh, they started a clinical trial in Scotland where they said, okay, everyone who shows up at the clinic for this period of time will ask you, do you consent to being part of a trial? And they say, okay, and they test you. That's it. And they go, oh, you're a carrier for CF. Can we test your husband? Oh, he's a carrier for CF. Would you like us to do amniocentesis? Yes. Okay. Your child is going to have CF. Do you want to continue the pregnancy or not? Okay. That is the least path of resistance to massively reduce the number of live births with cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And they dropped it by 95% over a five-year period. Wow. Wow. We could be doing that. Okay. But there are some ethical issues in there. Not everybody's religious framework will allow them to take that on. And that's right. something we have to be respectful for. Um, you know, I worked at Lawrence hospital. I saw every possibility and, and international, uh, uh, you know, uh, person come in and, and from different countries, even that have different genetic anomalies and you have to be respectful of, of, uh, you know, these people's background and their religion and their beliefs. And so, you know, that, that, is part of the kind of medical ethics, you know, mm-hmm. and I was going to get into that because we i have written on that a little bit about the fact that we've completely forgotten, you know, traditional medical ethics, which has, you know, these four tenets. but, you know, to, to keep, you know, speaking to, 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 to the CF, um, you know, so that's one way around it is just testing. Okay. And so that's, that can be done even if you already know that you're carrying CF, that can be done as, as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So right. that's where you don't even implant it. So you don't have to worry about abortions or any of that stuff. Um, so that's even better with step back, but just on a population control level. If you've got a lot of instances of a certain birth defect in your population, that's one way to, to go for it. Um, and uh, pre implantation is probably more expensive than, than genetic counseling, which is the first level. Right. The next level is, is pre implantation. The next level after that is sporadically, people are going to be born or their parents meet up or whatever, they're coming from a different country where they didn't have testing. You've got person born with cystic fibrosis. Now, um, the the one of the ways that, that you can deal that in Canada is so much farther ahead than the United States. So your ten your your life expectancy is ten years longer in Canada than the U.S. Yeah, and that's social medical medical care and the fact that we give lung transplants to young people, <coughs> um, and you can, and you can afford it through you know through the mm. medical mm-hmm. system. I mean, you have to wait to get a lung um but or lungs i should say i don't think they do one for now Uh, anyway until you until you start
0: growing those yeah in the u.s (laughs) you'd
2: have to have like god knows right you'd have to go to to, well ethics dumping you go to the middle east or china and go get some lungs Mm -hmm. um so so and that definitely happens don't don't kid yourself that the people with means are not doing that yeah uh but okay, so what do we do? You got cystic fibrosis. We're doing everything in the system we can. You know, we're making sure your antibiotic regime is great. We know so much more about exercise physiology and keeping your lungs healthy. Um, you know, all these things are great. How do we get to the next level so people are going to live a normal life expectancy? So back again in Scotland, you know, I did some of my training there. Around the time that they had Dolly the sheep, the cloning of the, of the sheep, mm. they were doing gene therapy for cystic fibrosis and sheep. And uh, they were able to... Uh, complement the loss of the transporter okay so it's a chloride ion transporter uh, the CFTR gene and short term they were able to correct that defect the problem was at the time is they were using adenovirus which you know everybody gets as a common cold as a kid and they developed immunity and their own immune cells destroyed the cells that had been gene-edited or transformed to express mm. the gene so this is the big problem with with doing what's called in vivo somatic gene editing versus ex vivo. So if I can like take your blood cells out and edit them and make sure everything's perfect and then put them back in, that's, that's the, the state of the art right now for like a really good gene therapy lifelong cure. But for cystic fibrosis, the thing is targeting the tissue and then having the changes stay and, and editing enough cells. To increase the life expectancy and the quality of life, most importantly, of, of the person getting the treatment. And, you know, uh, CF is, is a multi organ disease. So you gotta handle the pancreas, the digestion system, mm-hmm. you know, the colon. Uh, you know, we've got many other organs to target. Each one of them has to be targeted individually.
3: Mm. Oh, and wow.
2: so um, we're gonna get there. Like, I'm absolutely convinced we're gonna get there. We now have this virus called a associated virus. And and here, you know, you, you might be able to deliver the, the edits, uh, you know, the machinery you need to do, the CRISPR, you need to do the edits with these viruses. And they're continually tuning them to target different organs. And mm. right now, what you see in the literature is because the normal tropism, so the normal types of cells that these viruses like to infect are muscle, are lung, and uh, liver. Mm. And liver just filters everything out. So liver is the easiest thing to target. So if you have a liver disease, this is a golden time. For in vivo gene editing. Really? Um, but I think I think if if enough people are working on this, uh, the t- tools are there. We're, we're gonna have cures and we're gonna help people.
1: Sick Boy Podcast, will be right back after this word from our sponsors.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jessie
1: Crookshank.
0: I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl!
1: could it potentially play any sort of role in, um, in, in helping the world through COVID? Like, is there, is there a way that gene edi- editing could potentially be used to so, find a, This know, find is a
2: hubris a... of picking genes, okay? And I'm mm. glad you raised it because this is exactly, okay, the same type of logic that led a researcher named Hu Kui in China yeah. to create the first CRISPR babies. This is the exact right. same rationale. Right, okay? really. right, right. Pandemic, HIV, mm. hot topic. Uh, I want to make sure that parents who have HIV can have HIV-free children.
1: Okay.
2: Mm. Heart in the right place, okay? But what are you going to do? What's, what are you going to do to do that? So he picked a naturally occurring le- allele in Northern Europe, which is called the Delta 32 mutation in a gene called CCR5. It's one of the receptors used by one strain of HIV. It, ter- it turns out to be the the most common strain, but only one strain of HIV, uh, and it reduces the infection. Okay, so okay, heart, right place, maybe the right target, mm. but are there other interventions that aren't changing the fabric of what is to be human? Okay, this is this is the thing you always have to have in the back of your mind when you think about germline your mm. editing. You're forever changing something that took you know, what, four and a half billion years to stabilize. Uh, The hubris of that is ridiculous. And we don't want monoculture humans. So let's say you make an edit for the entire planet that makes you, and it would be easy, right? We know what you do. There's a receptor called ACE2. We know the mutations. We just published an article on this. We know the mutations that, for example, make a dog resistant to COVID-19, but a cat susceptible. It looks like it's literally one amino acid change. Hmm. let's go make that amino acid change in the lungs of every child born in the future let's say it turns out that that change makes you susceptible to another disease
3: right. makes a
2: perfect fit for another virus that's right. 20 times deadlier
3: and we just have no and idea.
2: that's what happened potentially with these right, children who are right, born right. when they made the mutation to ccr5 first of all they didn't they didn't make a precision edit these kids got a shotgun to the gene. Mm. Okay. So it was old timey tech in CRISPR years. Okay. Which is only a few years for Mm. massive changes in what's called on target effects. Okay. So they, they just ripped up that gene and the babies were (laughs) mosaics of different changes to that gene. So they're not even containing the original change. There's no precision in there at all. We don't know the ramifications for that for multi-organ disease or their immune system. But what we do know is that same Delta 32 mutation or disruption of that gene leads to lethal consequences when you get influenza. Oh, wow. And West Nile. Wow. And what's more common worldwide, right. coronavirus or influenza. And yeah. so now you, you have no idea if these children now are much more susceptible to, to uh, bad outcomes with influenza.
3: It's a, wildly amazing, it's a wildly good example of, of, yeah, like you said, heart in the right place, and, but, but there are unintended consequences to everything that we do, that we, and it's and it's But, but let's impossible. back up. We're
2: not going to sugarcoat it. The other things that, that this guy did, and, and which he's now doing three years in prison <coughs> for in, the, in right. uh, China, as well as a 3 million yuan fine, is that this guy did it by also faking the ethics approval. By directly consenting Whoa. the patients himself right, so they're coerced oh, yeah.
3: right Jeez. and the
2: fact that the technology wasn't needed because yeah. they can literally wash the sperm of the affected father and have babies with in vitro fertilization that do not carry HIV right wow. so there
3: was so so you know wrong he took chose the wrong path and, and there was a whole bunch of layers to what he was doing that was wrong and it but, was
2: unethical right at the base but my question he is never received approvals. It,
0: so is there is there a problem with, so you mentioned that like, for example, in the UK and in Ukraine, uh, when it came to the uh, three parent yeah. families, that that it's okay there, but it's not in other places. So like people will kind of travel to these other places to bypass these Absolutely. rules. So yeah. if if the global community isn't in agreement that this germline gene editing isn't okay, then will there not be ramifications that will affect people all around the world i'm just thinking like yeah you know, we, we refer I'm,
2: to them as rogue states right <laughs> or rogue rogue yeah. actors right uh and and yeah you can't stop these people from attempting it but you you can take away the incentives so for example you know we've written myself and Landon gets have written about this this idea of slow science that that you you know you move science forward but then you think about the ramifications and you reevaluate. And and you don't just jump straight into the economic potential of it or this rush to be first. And I think everything that's gone wrong in the last 30 years in applications of research science uh, have been this rush to get it out and commercialize and rush right. to be first. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're like, wait, you know, and, and, and if you don't know what slow science is, it's basically taking some of the principles of slow food movement, which started in Italy, which is in direct response to fast food, where we commoditized uh, and completely destroyed our food distribution system by trying to get cheap food quick to as many people as possible without worrying about the nutritional content or what it was doing to people.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And the
2: biggest thing is, you know, you you could basically say that the metabolic disease in the Western world is down to swapping fructose for sucrose in
1: mm-hmm. processed
2: foods. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the data is massive. I'm waiting for the huge class action suit at some point where they'll go after, uh, you know, for that, and uh, you know, the other one is um, bisphenol A in uh, plastics. I'm still amazed that, that, you know, even soup can has bisphenol A in it, right? right. They're what's, all trying to move away from. What's so bisphenol, bisphenol A is a? a plastic that is a xenoestrogen that's linked to prostate and breast cancer. And oh, it's,
3: wow. kind of su- and it's yeah. just super common. In, in, <laughs> it's in everything. In, in it everything. was
2: in baby bottles, right? Yeah.
3: Where? Uh, are, where- I, I was having this conversation yes I was having a conversation yesterday we were on a road trip just shooting the shit Kyle and I and and one of the things that that came up and specifically to a country like Canada that has a social uh, healthcare system um, and and the implications of the implications benefits if if everybody had if everybody had access to their genome mm-hmm. and that and and that you know if you if you were thinking about You know, if you were thinking about having a child and you're going, well, I don't really know what my, I don't really know anything about my, my genetics. And, and so now you you start
2: that, for example, right.
3: And you start that and then, and then maybe that's the, that's the catalyst for starting to think about that. And maybe you have access to it and you can get that done, or maybe you don't. And I was wondering about in terms of our social healthcare system and the idea that when you have a baby, like that, that baby uh, and and that pregnancy is is sort of we've accounted for that in the medical system in terms of the 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 financial burden that that places on our on our country and our tax system and all that stuff and how you know maybe what would is it possible that that there is like a legislation that gets introduced where where mapping the genome becomes an automatic process that gets wrapped up in the process of having a child. So that's already accounted for. Is it possible to wrap up genome mapping in the process of, of, of birthing a child so that somebody down the road for whatever reason, it's like now they have access to it for whatever reason they might need it. Is it, is it prohibitively expensive where somebody would go, no, that's crazy. Or is it reasonably is, is it a reasonable cost that the government might go, hey, and then that could have these like widespread implications on on uh, diminishing rates of disease and infection amongst the population?
2: Sure. I mean, but that, there, uh, there's a lot to unroll there. So for, first of <laughs> all, you should be really happy that the Supreme Court last Friday um, has said that the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act of 2017 That's is right. constitutional okay everyone should applaud that this is what your living history okay yeah. we have not been protected in the united states have been protected since i think i don't know 2004 or something by their their uh laws um I, I was trying to pull it up it's called gina in the united states 2008 they passed the genetic information non-discriminatory act or gina uh that was a shot across the bow like if the united states could get its act together to protect people's genetic information why weren't we doing it in canada and the reason for that is the insurance industry and quebec contesting it okay and so that's been overturned the supreme court said it's constitutional so now if you do elect to get your genome sequenced as long as that information is held within canada you can control that information and how it's used okay And there are some serious penalties for um, misusing that information. So up to a million dollar fine and five years in prison. Well, insurance companies, I hope you're listening. Uh, But what happens is in Canada is that because we have federal system, then we have provincial law. So medical care is actually uh, given to you by your provincial system. Um, You know, where is that information? What database is in it? is your own province going to decide it's going to do things. And you have some provinces which are a little unethical on how they use information for insurance purposes. Like for example, in British Columbia, uh, their insurance corporation, ICBC, uh, sometimes gets access to people's medical records when they shouldn't. Right. It's completely illegal, but they do all the time and they make people settle out of court. Um, ostensibly huh. allegedly
3: right yeah
2: <laughs> uh but but that, that's its idea that these things can happen when you have a yeah. provincial arm of your insurance also having access to your medical data
3: right so if having access everybody to your genetic that, data
2: and having insurance company run by the same province are are, are a red flag so right. i would say in british columbia mm-hmm. till they sort that out and i don't know why that's not become an issue in british columbia you know if if People get access they're not supposed to on paper, but they somehow get access to your medical information so in it's the too
3: easy. in the way that in the way that if you know that it might be it might be a positive on one hand that you've got this social health care system that might be able to wrap that up for people and have that access ha- and give that access to everybody through like when they're born um, and have access to it for the rest of their life because it's because we also have insurance systems that are set up within the same. Within basically the same house, there is like really, there could be really negative consequences. I mean, consequences it could be as that. simple
2: as the same IT individual handles both accounts.
3: Right. right? The right. same
2: provincial or federal employee has access to both accounts. And then, yeah. you know, and this happened with the gun registry <laughs> in Quebec. Okay. Somehow people got access to where the guns were. And then guess where the break ins happened when organized crime wanted a weapon? The gun that was registered. Mm. Okay. That, that, again, is something that happened. Um, you can go verify that if you want. Um, but these are the unhappy things that happen when you have similar IT infrastructure being accessed by people. There's the human component always, right? So the yeah. only thing you can do is take away the incentives for doing the cross-link of databases and using that. Thankfully, now, if someone had their genetic data accessed by another provincial arm, let's say an insurance company that's run by the, the province, they would now be protected if they tried to act on that. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that they might not still manipulate that information somehow to their benefit, but but at least now we have legislation. So yeah, right. So you're taking away the incentive because there's a penalty. At yeah. the end, like so, mm-hmm. you, whatever whatever you would save in insurance premiums or raise their insurance premiums, you know, have to say, look, that's actually might contravene the Non-Discrimination Act. And so, for the thousand dollars I saved on your premiums in in a year, I'm going to get a million dollar fine, um, or class action suits of groups of people right. whose right. genetic Ooh. information have been used. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is just discrimination, even by the state. Like we're we're kind <laughs> of like, oh, you know, the the living in a society that is fairly just okay i mean there are issues but we're fairly just society and we're a social democracy so so it's not even in our minds that our governments might misuse information Mm -hmm. uh or even discriminate based on information they would have Mm -hmm. at such an intimate level like your genetics
0: Mm -hmm. um to um just out of curiosity and like taylor I, i I'm kind of almost curious in what, what your, uh, reason was in asking that question from the sense of like, what is the value of a person having access to their own individual, uh, genetic information? Uh,
3: well, I mean, we were having this conversation the other day, Brian, about, um, about like certain scenarios where if you were to, um, where if you were to have a child, like what, like certain scenarios where you would want access to information of genes that you carry, Um, And the genes that your partner carries and and how that plays into your decision making in terms of whether you do or do not want to have a child, whether you whether that child might be exposed to, um, you know, genetic defects like like CF or whatever it might be. Um, And and all that plays into that. And now. And, and so, thinking So I can that tell it, you how
2: the costs are reduced, if that's what you're worried, like, you know, rolling it out to everyone. So being just, right? When the, the, one of cost,
3: principles. the cost mm-hmm. and the idea that, that that only at that juncture of thinking about certain things, you might start the process of trying to find out what's in your, what are in your genetics, what's in your genome, where so, if it happened at the outset I of totally life. I totally
2: understand the, the human need. For that information and i and i think um, like if you had a, like it a, should like a be birth an option yeah now that it's protected it should be an option now when we talk about the cost the w- there's two things one, one is incidental findings so do you want to be worried out of your skull that there is a 10 percent chance you're going to have alzheimer's and there's nothing you can do about it okay so that's one of the kind of downsides of having all that information and not mm-hmm. having enough genetic counselors to walk people through the ramifications of their data. So right. that, that's like a huge danger, short-term. So if we're going like, to go this new reality, it's like when you,
0: sorry, but it's like, it just on that point, it, it reminds me of like, I did a 23 andme me test and it tells you like, it's like before you get your results back, it's like, yeah. Hey, uh, heads up, uh, heads up. <laughs> like if you're like, we just really want to make sure that you're agreeing to seeing this data because it could, you know, maybe potentially make you really worried about a ton of things for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, you have to consent yeah. to that before you get the results.
2: Yeah. That's so that's it. And I, I think it's not enough to just say, can you consent please? Yeah. Right. I think mm-hmm. it's, you need to, in again, a social democracy and, and Medicare system, you need to provide the resources to help people once they get that information. Right. And mm-hmm. that right now I think is the biggest impediment to, to rolling out, um, You know, first was the genetic non-discrimination. So nobody should have got their DNA sequence before that was law and constitutional. The Supreme Court says it's fine. Uh, Now, go ahead, you know, uh, fill your boots, as it were. But if you get that information back, I think the problem is we don't have enough genetic counselors or enough support Mm -hmm. for those people to navigate what can be sometimes catastrophic information. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, let's say you're... You know, you and your friends, you're 17 or 18, you're not even thinking about a family and you get back in your BRCA1 positive. You're thinking about, am I ever gonna have children? Am I gonna have a hysterectomy and my ovaries taken out? Am I going to have a double mastectomy? I mean, when do I do it? Mm. Do I wait till I have children and then have this procedure done? I mean, that's kind of, it's important information to have. People argue arguing you need to have that. But if that—if you're getting it sequence for fun and then you get this information, that's that so It's irresponsible to yeah, not have yeah. the genetic counseling yeah. to back that up. And I think that that was one of the things with whether your 23andMe could include bracket testing, for example. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there there are much more subtle things where everything's a percentage game and we don't understand the penetrance right. of some of the diseases. Like, you know uh things that affect cardiac uh you know whether you're going to have a stroke or something at 80.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: um you know maybe that'll be good and you'll do the life uh, style interventions that'll prevent that or extend your life a little bit longer but but i think yeah we need the consultation but as far as costs, one of the ways to deal with it now is that if you go to the hospital so i know about this but for cancer genetics so someone comes in with a weirdo cancer and or particularly leukemias because there can be so, so many different differential diagnoses for blood disorders. Um, it's actually cheaper to do the sequencing for all the possible uh, gene mutations than it is to to you know just try treatments and then maybe lose the patient. So oh, so it's wow. actually more cost effective and better for the patient to just do the sequencing. So and they so could in, do the sequencing. Facts are starting to do that.
3: They could do the sequencing and then that would that would basically reduce the time or the amount yeah, of yeah. The, you, the effort not that... Yeah,
2: you're guessing on the most common treatment or the most efficacious treatment for a group of people. Right. You can fine-tune it for the patient themselves. Right, so, so it won't on... be
3: process of elimination. They would yeah, go, so we it do could that for be less and we know that. So
2: everyone who gets lung cancer in Nova Scotia gets their their um, tumor profile, okay? And there are about 30% of the cancers that have a targetable mutation. We still got this big block of about 60% that are that are, uh, you know, we don't know how to target or have a gene mutation that we don't know how to target yet. there aren't effective drugs uh, that are past clinical trials. Um, but, but this kind of personalization medicine is where sequencing and genetic information, even gene editing, could be great. So mm. imagine that you have residual uh, leukemia and it's really hard to kind of root this out because leukemia cells go everywhere. But mm. we can give you a gene therapy to your existing bone marrow that'll create like hunter killer T cells that will continually, for the rest of your life, go and hunt and kill those rogue cancer cells. Whoa. Like, how brilliant would that be, right? It's just, mm, like, augment yeah. to your therapy. It's like, you know, we kind of cured you, but your life expectancy is five years, but if we give you this gene therapy, you know, now we could, you know, we don't even know yet. We have to wait till the clinical trials go for, mm. for long, you know, longitudinal studies for decades to see how long this will last. And, and
0: that would be that would be somatic? That would be somatic, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm. Are there yeah cap- we,
2: we, trying to engineer people to be cancer-resistant is probably... Mm not great for the planet you know like that's a one in two killer uh or you know one in two diagnosis it's a one in six killer uh you know w- we need things that that cull humans at some point right we can't all live forever so i'm not saying that that you know I the Yet. thing is like having good quality Yet. of life right right yeah. yeah you want to have good quality of life for however it, long
0: it, is there like Ooh. this is a kind of a crazy question but I, I i'm curious to ask it anyway like it is this something that uh in in the future i don't know how many years out, but in the future there could be the possibility that we would be able to make somebody live forever
2: i don't know about forever but i think we could definitely um give people the tools whether they're somatic tools or treatments i because i don't like germline gene editing. the only the only way that i would suggest that that might totally work or be i don't even know ethical it's not even talking about ethical, it's more science fiction but yeah if we're trying to uh, colonize planets that are hostile to our biology, I can totally see gene editing being a way to to do that okay right. so whether it 's being able to handle uh, lower uh, oxygen concentration in the atmosphere or toxic gases or whatever mm. something that 's not compatible with our regular physiology. I could see us tweaking things so that you can colonize a web on a planet what, One of the things they 're going to work on for sure is that for space travel right now till we work out shielding technology is you need to be radio resistant for mm-hmm. any length of travel in space. Um, you know, you probably heard about uh, uh, Mars brain or space brain, where they don't think the people, the first colonizers of Mars, they, they're going to have to sleep in, in some kind of lead-lined helmet because mm. they're, they, they're at risk of, of dementias and neurological damage with the amount of radiation they get between here and getting to Mars.
0: Whoa, whoa.
3: That yeah. is so wild. They they yeah. did they mentioned that was uh one thing that they mentioned the other when I was watching on natural selection was was how was how basically necessary if we want to actually make any real progress in space travel and colonization, yeah. how how to our editing.
2: physiology. Yeah, because it just yeah. doesn't
3: accept we're just not made to be there. We're made to be here. Mm. Nope.
2: Mm-hmm. Tardigrades are, right? They survive in space. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And that's like cute, where one of these proteins comes from that's radio resistance. And there are people working on this. Uh right. Yeah. So, I mean, I love, I, I read a lot of science fiction. I and love I read that. a lot of fiction in general. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's fun to see books written in the 80s riffing off of the, you know, drosophila genetics, flies. And they're mm. calling it exactly, like, how people would respond to, to gene-edited people or people who are different genetically. Mm. Uh, this concept of other. And, and, and as primates, we've evolved this, like, horrible, I don't know, survival instinct of, like, my my troop you know my mm, group of people mm-hmm, and you're mm-hmm. different and and part of that was actually a type of uh what do they call it social immunity so if someone's carrying a bug it wouldn't spread because you're them and you look different and you're and you're not part of my group and so right. we stay socially distanced mm. and so like you know if we want to get kind of uh philosophical the the huge spike in racism and these kind of acts we're seeing now is directly connected to this this deep instinct for social distancing to prevent infection in groups Mm. of people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. This is, yeah. yeah, Like uh, I'm, I'm reading this book um, social leap uh, by William von Hippel. And, you know, it talks about a little about this. These kind of like psychosocial, genetics are evolution of primates and and that's That's baked into being fascinating right like how there can Um,
3: be a how there can be like a like a bot like something biologically baked in that is like that is that prevents cultures from from lizard
2: brain knee jerk right you know us and them mentality which is the base of every war and every you know discrimination act um that that we have to fight Right. Because we're the reason why we're so successful on the planet is because we can live in social groups with cohesion and that we can we can change what we believe to be right and wrong based on social consensus. Mm-hmm. And that allows us to be in these large, cohesive groups like a country. Mm. OK. And use a similar mo- a similar monetary system, etc. You You have to suspend all your your kind of instinctual. Uh, beliefs so the cultural having culture and you know staying put in one place and being able to coexist that that really has allowed us to be quite successful on this planet and mm. uh, but we still have baked in all these base instincts that we're constantly having to cause it's, it's hard because they they come out in different contexts you know that's why I, I get wound up um, you know because w- w- we see it all the time where where people in one context of their life will be hyper moral or ethical and then use that to license an, another act that's kind mm. of unethical, mm. right? Because, oh, why well, recycle? So so I can, you know, do something else over here. And that's the check and balance. <laughs> right, and, right, and, I, right. and that's humans, right? Like, you, mm. it's hard to fight that, but you see that all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, to, to bring it back to, to genetic manipulations and these things, we're always going to want the best for our kids. We're, we you know, we wouldn't be successful in in colonizing the planet like we have if we didn't want to preserve our lives. So there's always an urge to live longer and live better. I think our aim with medicine and these interventions is to live as long as we're biologically able to, but with high quality of life. Yeah. And I think beyond that is just hubris. And once you start Mm. picking alleles, like, you know, we talk about engineering people, Anything that you lock in on is like monoculture. Just keep thinking about Mm -hmm. monoculture. Mm -hmm. If every tree in a forest is a clone of every other tree, then you get uh, infection and it wipes out the whole forest. Human beings need, as long as we're on this planet and we're all living together, we want to really fight that impulse for monoculture or homogenization. Yeah. I mean, and that, as much diversity as possible in all aspects of life, right. including yeah. your own genetics. And mm-hmm. that's, where
3: it, that's where, going right, right back full circle to the beginning of the conversation, that is where this does have that potential to be like eugenics.
2: Totally mm. abused. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally, totally abused. Yeah. yeah. And, totally yeah. and worse yet, for yeah. money yeah right, right for right. money
0: well i think we said that we were not going we were going to like separate it from eugenics through this conversation <laughs> but we just got right back there yeah,
2: yeah. well i mean I, I don't it's not synonymous right <laughs> no so no yeah. gene editing has its uses we talked yeah. about agriculture and pest control mm-hmm. uh in in synthetic biology where you use organisms to solve real world problems okay mm. and if you think all oh, this is stupid and flaky there's a company called ginkgo biotech that that is a multi 4.2 billion dollar company that mm. came out of uh, a program run out of mit called iGEM, um, internationally genetically engineered machine so in 2003 mit started this program where it was teaching undergrads how to do synthetic biology and now they become this huge resource of what they call biobricks of little biological circuits that you can do to do things like, you know, if you need to make something in a, in a chemical process, you can make those components. It could be something as stupid as making the blue color from blueberries. Mm. Right. But that could be really important. For example, for creating a coloring that is a little safer than a chemical coloring in your smarties. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's all this like fun stuff that you can do with synthetic biology. That's actually, you know probably better than using chemicals mm. or or better on the planet cuz you don't need to like clear-cut a kind of forest to make taxol mm. uh you know they found some of the synthetic biology to to take just the pine needles and not cut the tree down to to actually get the the drug mm. so so these are all really great uses of gene editing and then even for Treating patients, I think, you know, as you manage for cystic fibrosis, you know, if you're born with CF and you're the first person born for CF in your family, you're afflicted. It, it, we need to get you some kind of treatment. And I think gene therapies are gonna help there because that's a genetic disease. And yeah. cancer is a genetic disease, right? So something goes wrong and, and if you can correct it, you can either make it now susceptible to the drugs to kill it or you can, you know, stop that cancer from growing. And then for aging, I think you know some of these treatments are going to allow people to age healthier you're not Mm -hmm. going to necessarily massively extend your your life because there's so i mean it's too complicated there's so many things going on Mm -hmm. but if you could you know they've done this in mice like caloric restriction yeah. I know it sucks because we all want to eat potato chips and have a beer once in a while. But, yeah, the uh,
3: intermittent fasting is like 30% right? or something like that on, well, on, on worms, most lives. So we'll see what yeah. happens
2: in humans. It's too early to tell. Mm-hmm, but right. but certainly, um, you know, the cardiovascular and metabolic changes are aligned with living longer, right? Mm-hmm. But you can get hit by a bus tomorrow. So, so you know, you got to balance that, What you're going to yeah. do. But, yeah. um, you know, I think some of these interventions that are coming are going to <laughs> get rid of senescent cells and Mm. these are cells that that in disease states right like part of the thing when you get inflammation or in your lungs or whatever part of what's hurting you is the inflammation creating cytokines like il interleukin 6 is a big one and and these things are are prematurely aging you they're affecting how your organs function um you you know if we can dampen that down this is where everyone gets crazy about antioxidants and anti-inflammatory stuff Mm. um but that, well, I can get into that if you wanted to do a whole podcast on that. I, I work with <laughs> the nutritional chemists and, and we're constantly like, you know, I'm a cheerleader, but let's back up a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, these things can be harmful, too. But, but if you can get rid of the senescent cells in your organs, they've shown in mice that it can you know make them much more healthy so you have a two-year-old mouse which would be near the end of its life and it's on the treadmill like crazy and it, it's more active than than the younger mouse at half its age mm-hmm. and it, it's just getting rid of the senescent cells so that so this is this new field of senolytics so compounds or drugs or treatments that you take and in some respect caloric restriction is part of the senolytic mm-hmm. type uh right. changes that you can yep. make that was a
3: big conversation with Aubrey de Grey on, uh, Aubrey de I Grey. I love Aubrey and, de, and, and, de Grey. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, uh, Peter Adia, uh, was another big, uh, uh, big proponent of, of intermittent fasting and a lot of things that, that sort of like extend your longevity and, and play into yeah. you
2: just Here's the problem though. And I've challenged people on this is that all this stuff is predicated on the rest of your endocrine system working great. Okay, and do you know what I mean by that? What do you what What is like one of the number one uh, endocrine organs in your body that, in North America in particular, is completely out of whack in a large portion of people? Right, thyroid. What's in here? Your thyroid. Thyroid. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay. Yeah. So once your thyroid's out of whack, all these interventions have different ways of working out in those people's bodies so your metabolism is dramatically affected because thyroid hormone actually affects your mitochondria and affects skeletal muscle and affects Mm. all these things that normally are regulating your metabolism and so uh you know none of the clinical trials are done on people who are who are you know got Hashimoto's uh, or other kinds of autoimmune diseases that affect the thyroid right. and that's one of the 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 worst uh, you know rising endocrinology diseases in North America is mm. thyroiditis and hypothyroid
1: man, man this this conversation, Went in directions that I I was not anticipating. This Welcome been, to my
2: brain. I, on, yeah, yeah, your brain Graham, is just like
3: gene editing.
1: You, you're <laughs> gonna you're, you you are absolutely gonna become uh, a regular sick. Boy, I, yes. I was gonna say. I was gonna say this won't be the first. This won't be the uh, the, the only time that we have you on the show. I don't think. Yeah. Um, no, it's fine. uh Dr. Graham Dallaire, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, your day to day to. To basically give us a free fucking Dalhousie lecture. That was great. <laughs> uh, I, think, I, I am, I, I think a, am a, a better a doctor to uh, a prefix yeah. to my name now. And, Contrary uh, to the these story, are, I'll just
2: predicate everything by saying uh, you know
1: these are all my opinions. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, of course, of Anything course, that of
2: you course. that people will get antsy illegally about, uh, let's treat it as alleged, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and you know you can go confirm for yourself. Mm-hmm, um, right. Certainly, this is all my opinions. Yeah. uh and and so we'll we'll leave it at yeah. that i look yeah, forward contrary, to hearing more
3: uh, of your opinions con- <laughs> contrary to uh to to uh billy madison's uh lecture at the uh, at the at the end <laughs> we are all better people and smarter <laughs> for having listened to you today
1: yeah. <laughs> uh dr graham uh thank you so much it was uh, really nice talking to you yeah dr
3: lair
2: follow me on twitter dr lair Sweet. perfect
1: There you have it, folks. Uh, do you feel smarter? I know I do. Uh, <laughs> again, uh, really fascinating stuff, and uh, can't thank Dr. Lair enough for taking time out of his day to drop some knowledge on us about the the wild and fascinating world of gene editing. Um, we hope you enjoyed this week's Feel Good Friday episode. We will be back next week with a just a, a, the, the same old same. The, the the gang back together again, making you smile and getting you through these weird, weird times we live in. Um, and so, in the meantime, I hope you have a really wonderful weekend. We love each and every one of you. Uh, that is it for this week. You were listening to Brian, and there was Taylor, and I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. I'm-